You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I am Asha Gopal Krishnan and today we have a selection of two articles from the print edition of The Economist dated 5th March 2022. Our first recording is from the leaders section. The invasion of Ukraine. When Vladimir Putin escalates his war, the world must meet him. Muttering nuclear threats, Russia's president vows to prevail in Ukraine whatever it takes. Marvel at the heroism and resilience of Ukraine. In the first days of war, the armored might of Vladimir Putin shriveled before the courage of the nation he had attacked. In the face of Mr. Putin's invasion, the Ukrainian people have discovered they are ready to die for the idea that they should choose their own destiny. To a cynical dictator, that must be incomprehensible. To the rest of humanity, it is an inspiration. If only this week's bravery were enough to bring the fighting to an end. Russia's president will not withdraw so easily. From the start, Mr. Putin has made clear that this is a war of escalation, a hygienic word for a dirty and potentially catastrophic reality. At its most brutal, escalation means that, whatever the world does, Mr. Putin threatens to be more violent and more destructive even. He growls, if that means resorting to a nuclear weapon. And so he insists that the world back off while he sharpens his knife and sets about his slaughter. Such a retreat must not happen, not only because to abandon Ukraine to its fate would be wrong, but also because Mr. Putin will not stop there. Escalation is a narcotic. If Mr. Putin prevails today, his next fix will be in Georgia, Moldova or the Baltic states. He will not stop until he is stopped. Escalation is at the heart of this war because it is how Mr. Putin tries to turn defeat into victory. The first wave of his invasion proved as rotten as the cabal who planned it, just like his earlier efforts to suborn Ukraine. Mr. Putin seems to have believed his own propaganda that the territory he has invaded is not a real country. The initial assault, which led with botched helicopter strikes and raids by lightly armed units, was conceived for an adversary that would implode. Instead, Ukrainian spirits have flourished under fire. The president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has been transformed into a war leader who embodies his people's courage and defiance. The optimism of the warmonger made Mr. Putin lazy. He was so sure Ukraine would fall rapidly that he did not prepare his people for it. Some troops have been told they are on exercises or that they will be welcomed as liberators. Citizens are not ready for a fratricidial conflict with their fellow Slavs. Having been assured that there would be no war, much of the elite feels humiliated. They are horrified at Mr. Putin's recklessness. And Russia's president believed that the decadent West would always accommodate him. In fact, Ukraine's example has inspired marches through the capital cities of Europe. Western governments, having listened, have imposed severe sanctions. Germany, which only a week ago drew the line at sending anything more lethal than helmets, is dispatching anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons, overturning decades of policy based on taming Russia by engaging with it. Faced with these reverses, Mr. Putin is escalating. In Ukraine, he is moving to besiege the main cities and calling up his heavy armour to wantonly kill their civilian inhabitants. A war crime. At home, he is bringing Russians to heel by redoubling his lies and subjecting his people to the harshest state terror since Stalin. To the West, he is issuing threats of nuclear war. 
The world must stand up to him. And to be credible, it must demonstrate that it is willing to bleed his regime of the resources that enable him to wage war and abuse his own people, even if that imposes costs on Western economies. The sanctions devised after Mr. Putin annexed Crimea in 2014 were riddled with loopholes and compromises. Instead of being deterred, the Kremlin concluded that it could act with impunity. By contrast, the latest sanctions imposed on February 28th have crumpled the ruble and promised to cripple Russia's financial system. They are effective because they are destructive. The danger of escalation is that this can easily become a test of who is most willing and able to go to extremes. Recent wars have been asymmetric. Al-Qaeda and Islamic State would commit any atrocity, but their power was limited. America could destroy the planet, but against foes like the Taliban in Afghanistan, nobody imagined it was willing. The invasion of Ukraine is different because Mr. Putin can charge all the way to Armageddon and he wants the world to believe he is ready to do so. The idea of Mr. Putin using a battlefield nuclear weapon is surely unlikely, but not impossible. He has, after all, just invaded his neighbour. And so the world must deter him. Some will say there is no point in saving Ukraine only to trigger a spiral that may destroy civilization, But that is a false choice. Mr. Putin says he wants to drive NATO out of the former Warsaw Pact countries and America out of Europe. If escalation serves him, the next confrontation will be even more dangerous because he will be less ready to believe that, for once, the West will stand its ground. Others may conclude that Mr. Putin is insane and deterrence is hopeless. True, his goals are abhorrent, as are his means of achieving them. Neither does he have Russia's true interests at heart but he nonetheless has an understanding of power and how to keep it. No doubt he is alive to the language of threats. By contrast, still others will want to short-circuit escalation, saying that Mr. Putin must be stopped before it is too late. As images of suffering emerge from the ruins of Ukraine's cities, calls are going up for NATO to do something, such as to create a no-fly zone. However, enforcing one requires shooting down Russian aircraft and destroying Russian air defences. Instead, NATO needs to preserve a clear line between attacking Russia and backing Ukraine while leaving no doubt that it will defend its members. That is the best break on escalation. What then can it do to deter Mr. Putin without courting devastation? Only Mr. Zelensky and his people can decide how long to fight. But if Mr. Putin causes a bloodbath, the West can tighten the screws. An oil and gas embargo would further ruin Russia's economy. Ukraine's backers can send more and better arms. NATO can deploy more troops in its frontline states. Diplomacy matters too. At peace talks in Belarus this week, Russia still made outrageous demands. But negotiations should continue because they could help avert a war of attrition. The European Union has done well to open its arms to Ukrainian refugees, who already exceeded one million. A haven can strengthen the hand of the Ukrainian negotiators, as would a path to EU membership. China and India have so far refused to condemn Mr. Putin. As he escalates, they may be sufficiently alarmed to be willing to try to talk him down. And there is work to do in Russia. Military commanders should know they will be prosecuted for war crimes using the evidence generated by innumerable smartphones. So should Mr. Putin's entourage. His enforcers signed up to line their pockets in a kleptocracy, not for a ticket to The Hague. The West can discreetly assure them that, If they remove Russia's president from power, Russia will get a fresh start. 
However nauseating, the West should give Mr. Putin a route into retirement and obscurity, just as it should give asylum to those fleeing his terror. A palace coup may come to seem more plausible as the horror of what Mr. Putin has done sinks in. The economy faces disaster. Russian military casualties are growing. Russians' Ukrainian kin are being massacred in a conflict unleashed to satisfy one man. Even now, brave Russians are taking to the streets to protest against a crime that stains their country. In a deep sense, Mr. Putin's needless war is one that neither he nor Russia can win. Our next recording is from Briefing Section. The Economic Weapon Western sanctions on Russia are like none the world has seen but they may weaken the system they are meant to defend. Ban Russia from SWIFT Russia Fuera de SWIFT The placards on display at demonstrations across Europe during the last weekend in February were a sign of the times. In place of the straightforward demands of yesteryear like arm the South African workers and perennially ban the bomb, many of the messages focused on access to the digital messaging system used by financial institutions for cross-border payments. Economic measures to cut Russia off from the world's financial arteries are the most powerful implements a West, unwilling to meet a nuclear adversary on the battlefield, has dared to wield in response to the invasion of Ukraine. But it has wielded them savagely. No major economy in the modern world has ever been hit so hard by such weapons. The use of sanctions, which Nicolas Mulder, a historian, calls one of liberal internationalism's most enduring innovations. In his new book on the subject, the economic weapon has boomed over the past few decades. Since 2000, the number of individuals and entities on America's sanctions list has risen more than tenfold to 10,000. Ever more governments, keen to punish military aggression or human rights abuses, but reluctant to go to war over them, have embraced the tactic. As with other weapons, a number of innovations have been developed to target them more precisely. Governments have also, on occasion, deployed sanctions with what was intended to be overwhelming force. The decision to do so against Vladimir Putin's regime will show both what they can achieve and possibly how big their intended costs can be. Though Western sanctions started off a bit feebly, public opinion and Ukraine's inspirational resistance quickly saw them toughened up. After debating whether to make it much harder for Russian banks to process international payments by shutting them out of SWIFT, some European countries feared it would hurt their own banks too. Western allies agreed to try targeting seven of them, though it has steered clear of Sparebank, Russia's largest by assets, which plays a big role in processing energy payments. America has gone further, cutting off Sparebank and VTB, Russia's second largest lender from its financial system. The most potent financial sanctions, though, have been aimed not at Russia's commercial banks, but at its central bank. In the eight years since annexing Crimea made Russia the target of a first wave of sanctions, Mr. Putin's regime has built up reserves. They now total $630 billion and shifted their composition away from dollars to help insulate the economy from further punishment. But reserves become moot, whatever the currency in which they are held, if they cannot be used. America, acting with Europe, has banned a range of parties from transactions with Russia's central bank, on pain of enormous fines. That will cripple Russia's ability to defend its currency. The West has also frozen most of the bank's assets outside Russia. This surprised financial professionals, including apparently in Moscow. 
According to one European central banker, the way the Russian central bank had been accumulating and distributing reserves suggested it did not believe the West would take such draconian measures. Within hours of the sanctions taking effect, the central bank raised its main interest rate from 9.5% to 20% in an attempt to shore up the currency. It ordered companies with foreign currency revenues to convert most of them into rubles and told Russian banks to reject instructions by foreign clients to liquidate Russian securities. Mr. Putin later banned anyone from taking more than $10,000 in foreign currency out of the country. This financial barrage was accompanied by slower-burning sanctions. Export controls will limit the components Russia can buy for its military and high-tech sectors denying its goodies ranging from cutting-edge machinery to microchips. The measures apply not just to goods made in America, but to those containing American technology that are made in and shipped from third countries, such as China. President Joe Biden said these controls could cut off more than half of Russia's high-tech imports. For now, consumer goods dear to ordinary Russians like smartphones and home appliances are exempted from such measures, presumably to allow room for escalation. But Apple is no longer selling iPhones or other kit in Russia. It is one of a fast-growing number of Western companies getting out. BP, Equinor and Shell, three oil majors, announced plans to extricate themselves from their Russian ventures. Maersk's ships will no longer visit Russian ports. Nike is stopping online sales. The most significant of these moves is by BP, which would give up a 20% stake in Rosneft, an oil company run by a close ally of Mr. Putin's. Russia responded to its plans and those of others seeking to divest themselves by announcing a temporary ban on foreign firms selling Russian assets to ensure they were guided by economics, not political pressure. Selling its stake in Rosneft could land BP with a write-down of up to $25 billion. Nobody thinks sanctions alone can force Mr. Putin to sound the retreat. The governments that have imposed them nevertheless hope the punishment and isolation they inflict and the possible deterrent effects, on others at least, justify them. Measuring the success of sanctions is hard, not least because of the difficulty of disentangling their effects from other economic and on occasion military forces, but there have been few outright successes. Perhaps the quickest, though some time ago, was America's threat to dump sterling bonds and block Britain's access to IMF credit during the Suez Crisis in 1956. The Anglo-French invasion of Egypt was abandoned weeks later. A more recent success was the squeeze on Libya by America and allies in the 1990s and early 2000s. A mix of sanctions and financial inducements persuaded Muammar Gaddafi to end his WMD program and stop funding terrorism. The apparent failures of sanctions are many. Sometimes this is because they are fundamentally symbolic or weakened by interest groups in the countries imposing them. Though the point of sanctions is to exploit asymmetries, doing much more harm to the adversary than to yourself, there are always burdens to be borne by some. There is also a loss to the economy as a whole. The cost of compliance with sanctions for banks and companies has skyrocketed over the past decade. Financial institutions alone spent over $50 billion worldwide in 2020 on screening clients for sanctions risks, according to LexisNexis, a data firm. But severe sanctions have failed too. Though strong sanctions brought Iran to the nuclear negotiating table in 2015, even stronger maximum pressure sanctions, later imposed by America, have neither dislodged the mullahs who run the country nor stopped its meddling in the region. American-led sanctions against Venezuela, for years, 
and Cuba for decades have failed to change their regimes or even forced them to change their ways. One thing which weakens sanctions is leakiness. Despite America's maximum pressure measures, the Islamic Republic manages to export an estimated 1 million barrels of oil per day as middlemen find ways to disguise the origin of shipments. And the more powerful sanctions are, the greater the risk of collateral damage, particularly when targeted regimes are indifferent to the suffering of citizens. Indeed, increasing the harm done can work at least in part in the government's favour. In Venezuela, a significant number of those opposed to President Nicolas Maduro and his henchmen also opposed the American sanctions putatively aimed at dislodging them. Sanctions can also push countries they target into each other's arms. Russia and China hit with American sanctions over its mistreatment of Uyghurs, as well as its suspected tech spying, are enjoying their friendliest relations for decades. Russia was already by far the biggest beneficiary of Chinese overseas lending and assistance between 2017, receiving up to $151 billion, according to Aid Data, a research group. China could supply Russia with semiconductors and hardware for telecoms networks and data centers as Western suppliers pull away, though China cannot yet produce the most advanced chips. That highlights one of the ways the sanctions sword is double-edged. It encourages those who fear them to develop alternative financial and technological infrastructures. This is not easily done, as the continuing vulnerability of Russia's central bank and the weakness of its tech sector show. China is pushing hard in that direction. As well as trying to boost its chip-making, it is creating its own version of SWIFT, called SIPS, which simplifies cross-border payments in yuan and developing a digital currency. The sight of Russia's central bank being hit so hard by sanctions, no one expected, will doubtless increase its efforts to establish the yuan as a reserve currency. It will also seek ways to protect its $3.3 trillion of reserves by trying to move them beyond America's financial reach. It has a long way to go, though usage of the yuan as a currency for international payments is at an all-time high, at just over 3% of the total, it still pales beside the dollar at 40%. Even so, potential moves towards independence from the American-dominated system still pose a dilemma for the West. If wielding the economic weapon prompts possible targets to accelerate measures aimed at protecting themselves, the weapon's potency will weaken over time. Not wielding it, though, means you might as well not have it. That said, forbearance might have a systemic benefit. Mr. Mulder's book argues that, when world trade is stagnating, aggressive sanctions can do serious damage to it. The measures used between the first two world wars, he argues, ended up undermining the already precarious political foundations of that era's international trade. The same could happen again. As the world economy reels from financial crises, nationalism, trade wars and a global pandemic, sanctions are aggravating existing tensions within globalization. That sanctions are intended to promote international stability is, unfortunately, no defence against this risk. The more immediate question facing America and its allies is how much further to go and when. The EU could broaden its SWIFT ban. All banks with operations in America or Europe, regardless of where they are based, could be forced to cease transactions with Russian financial institutions. The West could also step up efforts to follow the offshore money trails linked to Mr. Putin and his circle. America, the EU and Britain said this week that 
they will set up a task force to improve transatlantic cooperation on identifying and seizing Kremlin-linked assets, though such efforts typically take years. The most obvious way to inflict more economic pain would be to target the oil and gas exports that are Russia's biggest source of foreign currency. The scale of the costs that would impose on Europe, though, make such a measure a truly double-edged sword. If Russia calculates that the cost on Europe is too high for it to bear, it might shut off the exports itself. And pushing up the price of petrol in an election year, as such measures would, would be a brave move on the part of the Biden administration. Brent crude has jumped above $115 a barrel, over 20% higher than just before the invasion. When used in earnest, sanctions can inflict heavy economic costs on both sides on top of the deprivation inflicted in targeted countries. Even then, they do not always work. There's perhaps only one constituency which can be relied on to do well out of them. The head of the sanctions team at a large American law firm says it has moved to a 24-7 operation over the past week to allow it to pass new, often unprecedented regulations and advise companies in every sector imaginable. It seems entirely possible that, as the world of sanctions continues its evolution, the hard-grafting lawyers will have yet more salad days to come. That brings us to the end of today's set of articles from the print edition of The Economist. If you want to learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low vision and print impaired listeners. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Asha Gopal Krishnan and I'll be back soon with the next week's update from The Economist. Thank you for listening.